The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is powered by DEN Certifications. You want to deepen your practice or supplement your knowledge for your day-to-day job? You'd be surprised to know how many certifications we do offer. All levels of Reiki, intuitive healing, compassion, animal communications, and of course, our deep 400-hour meditation teacher training program. Go to denmeditation.com and look under certifications for more information. We have Rabbi Schlesinger here, and I met him a little bit over a year ago. Can you believe it? Just so the audience knows, I met him and your coworkers, Antoine and Ali, when I was on a trip in Israel with Marianne Williamson. Um, and she really wanted to dive into the conflict of the Middle East and kind of see if we could put a spiritual perspective on it. And we talked to so many different people who represented every side, up, down, and around. And then we kind of wandered into, you guys, what is it, like a farm? I don't even know how to explain it, in the West Bank. And you spoke to us and Antoine spoke to us that day and all of our jaws had dropped. I mean, it was so incredible to listen to all of you speak about this purity of how you embrace each other. And by that, I mean this organization of roots, which they have started, which is just this grassroots project of peace and love and understanding of both Palestinians and Israel working together. And that to me is what's so amazing is Israelis and Palestinians working together, which I think is so incredible. And there's so much love between you guys and understanding. And you really learn to embrace what you once learned to hate. And so I kind of want to start with that because you guys work together every single day. You now have a mission of your right, but you are really a living example of what everyone is capable of. So like, let's start from the beginning because your story is so powerful. So how did you even, like, how did you even get to Israel? Because I know that's part of the story is you getting there and your perspective on it. So obviously we're going to have to make it shorter than I sometimes tell it. It's a long story. Look, I was born in New York. Uh, into a Jewish family and uh, during my high school years I became connected to the Jewish idea to Jewish tradition and especially to the Zionist idea which basically says look the Jewish people are a people are historical people we've been on this earth for 3,000 years and from the very beginning we've understood ourselves to be a, a nation a nation that has a certain piece of land the land of Israel it was called in the Bible land that Canaan today the state of Israel is there And for the past 2,000 years, since the Romans destroyed the Second Commonwealth in the year 70 of the Common Era, the Jewish people have been in what we understand as exile. We've been in North Africa, we've been in the Middle East, we've been in Europe, and all these years, uh, the Jewish people have have a sense of limbo, a sense of existentially not being at home. We've been praying, we've been hoping, we've been yearning to go back to our ancient homeland. And all of the years that we're in the diaspora, we feel that we're just holding on to the tradition in order to remember who we are so that when we come back, and we're going to come back, we will know who we are. And then, a hundred years ago, the Zionist movement began to find a way to return the Jewish people to our homeland, So here I was in New York in the 1950s and 60s, 70s, growing up. Uh, I learned about the Jewish people, about my own people, about the dream of coming home. And I said, I want to be part of this. I don't want to sit on the the back of the stage. I want to be at center stage with the Jewish people. I want to be part of the recreation of Jewish destiny. I want to be part of returning the Jewish people to the center stage of history. I want to be the nation we're meant to be. I picked up my two bags when I was 18. I got in the plane. And I did what we call in Hebrew, make aliyah, make ascending, ascended to the land, uh, to be a central player, a central, uh, how you can say, a central character, a central actor in the drama of the consummation of Jewish destiny. And for the past uh, about 40 years, I've been living here in Israel with a deep sense of fulfillment, of culmination, of of, uh, realizing what I was meant to be. It's pretty powerful. And then... 
four and a half years ago, I suddenly realized that my truth isn't the only truth in this land. I began to realize that I had thought that my story, the Jewish story, the Zionist story, is the only story. And I was, I was blind. I, uh, for me, the Palestinians didn't exist, or they were like the gray uh, landscape that passes in the background of a movie, but it's not part of the story. And what brought me to realize that there's another story in this land, the Palestinians, there's another people in this land, there are other human beings in this land that I had just ignored. What, uh, one of the points uh, four and a half years ago, the points in my life that brought me to this realization was when I was driving my car with two guests from the U.S. who wanted to see the flourishing of Jewish life in the land of Israel, and I showed them around where I live with great pride. And I picked up a hitchhiker, because we had some room in the car, picked up another one. When the second hitchhiker got out of the car, one of the guests said to me the following words, exactly word for word. He said, Hanan, looks like you're a really nice guy. That's a great thing that you pick up hitchhikers. Back in Texas, where I come from, he said, we don't do that. So I said to him, Bob, it's not just me. We all pick up hitchhikers. We have a sense of, of mission, of common destiny in this land. And just like everyone else, I do my best to pick up every person who puts out his finger uh, asking for a ride. And almost as soon as I finished that sentence, I realized that I was lying. I was lying to my guest, Bob. But even worse, I was lying to myself. What bothered me at that moment was not the fact that I don't pick up Palestinians. What bothered me was the fact that I suddenly realized that I don't pick up Palestinians. And I realized that until then, I hadn't realized that I don't pick them up. I thought I picked up every person who put out his finger. Which means either that they weren't human beings in my eyes, or they weren't there at all in my eyes. Yeah, what do you think it was about that moment that made you for the first time think about it? Because I'm sure other people have mentioned it or you've been picking people up for years. What was it about that moment that all of a sudden the light bulb went off? Very good question. Thank you for that. It had been only a few months after I came home from spending eight years in the U.S., during those eight years, I maintained my home in Israel. My grown children were back in Israel. Uh, my wife was going back and forth. I was only also going back and forth to a certain degree. But I had been affected by American culture for eight years. And American culture has is, a, is an open society in which Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, blacks, whites don't always get along. But at least they live in the same... Uh, in the same space, and they speak the same language, and they're used to seeing each other and accepting that the other is there, the other is real, the other is human, the other is a story, the other is part of the fabric of the society you live in. And also in America, I'd been involved in interfaith dialogue as a rabbi. I'd gotten to know a Christian religious leaders, Muslim religious leaders, and the interfaith dialogue that I did in America with these other leaders deeply affected me. It, it broadened me. It gave me a sense of, of larger truth, of, of more of, of spiritual realities and ways of thinking that I hadn't been aware of. And I learned to be aware of them and to respect them and to love them and to be enriched by them. And then I come back home to Israel. Here, everyone lives in his own bubble. The Palestinians, Israelis, we have no contact with each other. Uh, the Jews, the Israelis know nothing about Islam, nothing about Christianity. Uh, and I felt that I had to bring what I, what I experienced in America back home here to Israel. And it was at that point that I was thinking about this, that I had these two guests in the car. And I, I said that sentence, I pick up all the hitchhikers, I pick up every person. And it suddenly dawned on me, you're a liar. And that so was... Want to realize that about themselves. Yeah, it's a, not pleasant. <laughs> it, it's not pleasant, but, but it's... Uh, but it was a spiritual wake-up. And then I began this journey of trying to meet my neighbors, which is, of course, a, other, a long story. Uh, and ultimately, I was enriched. Let's start from that story a little bit. Talk about, because I really do love when you talk about the first moment you decided 
to go for a walk and basically I'm going to go meet one. And I say it mysteriously like that because I think that's part of your point of view at the time. Right, right. So it was actually uh, on Facebook that I finally found someone who said he can introduce me to my neighbors, my Palestinian neighbors. Let me just actually go back for a minute, make sure that the listeners understand that I live a half hour south of Jerusalem uh, in the area called the Palestinian Territories or Judea and Samaria or Liberated Territory or Occupied Territory, Disputed Territory. And here, Israelis and Palestinians live right next to each other, but completely separate in different towns and villages, speaking different languages, with different media, under different legal systems, different religions, different economic systems, different calendars. Everything is separate. So I didn't know how to meet my neighbors, even though I knew I had to. On Facebook, I put out the uh, call and I got a message from a Protestant pastor from Reston, Virginia, USA. His name is John Moyle. And John said that he has this Christian ministry, that he comes to the Holy Land twice a year, specifically to the area I live in, south of Jerusalem. And he does this crazy thing of meeting Israelis and meeting Palestinians and introducing them to each other. Wow. So John uh, came to the Holy Land for, I guess, his fifth time in January 2014. He met me in my living room. We got to know each other very well. And he told me, Hanan, on a certain day, he gave me the day and the time, and he gave me directions of how to go there. This is what you have to do to meet your neighbors. So I knew the time and the place. I had the directions. The time rolled around, and I went to the front door of my house. I told my wife I was leaving. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to meet Palestinians. And she screamed. She said, no, it can't be. What are you going to do? And I saw the terror in her eyes when she begged me not to go. So I went anyway, and I was afraid. I didn't have to take the car. We lived that close. I took a walk through the fields, 20 minutes. And I got to a clearing. Yeah, it's, it is amazing. I got to this clearing uh, surrounded by a uh, stone fence. That's the place where you met myself and Antoine. Uh, owned by a Palestinian family, a piece of farmland. I walked in and I saw something that can't be. I saw a miracle. I saw 15 Israelis and 15 Palestinians talking to each other, just uh, smoozing, as we say, uh, milling around and meeting each other. So I uh, see this Palestinian woman who was not talking to anyone. She was dressed in brown from head to toe, so I knew she was an observant Muslim. I walked over, I said hello, we talked for like a minute in English. And then I remember I said to her, wow, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And she said back to me, I can't believe I'm talking to you because we don't talk to Israeli settlers. We don't talk to you guys. And it could have been the end of the conversation. It, it wasn't for some reason. We talked a little bit more. And then her son comes over. So she introduced me, introduces me to Yazin, who's 17 years old. We shake hands. And I see that he's wearing a windbreaker that says in it, in English, three words. Seeds of peace. I didn't know what seeds of peace is. Of course, I knew the meaning of the word separately, seeds of peace. <laughs> so I uh, see the word peace on the jacket of a Palestinian. And I say to myself, Palestinian and peace, it doesn't go together. Because I knew, I thought I knew that Palestinians, they aren't peaceful. They're violent. They're terrorists. They're bloodthirsty. They're, they're primitive. So I was pretty certain that this young man, Yazin, didn't know what his jacket said. I said to myself, perhaps he found the jacket on the floor. Someone gave it to him. So half-jokingly, I said to Yazin, Yazin, what's this Seeds of Peace thing? And he goes on to describe to me that Seeds of Peace is a summer camp in Maine, USA. Incredible organization. Yeah. Again, I knew nothing about it. I learned later from Yazin. So uh, <laughs> he tells me it's this camp that takes Palestinian kids and Israeli kids out of the conflict zone for a summer of recreation and reconciliation, meeting each other, having fun. So he said he just got back from the camp. He had a great time that summer, four months ago, met Israeli kids, their friends on Facebook, and he told me that he was so transformed by this summer that he wants to spend some of his life building bridges of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. 
and I'm listening to Yazin, and I don't know if I can believe him. Because it just can't be that Palestinians go to a summer camp with Israelis and they talk and they learn about peace and reconciliation. That's impossible. It can't happen. So I was very confused by Yazin. Yeah. <laughs> can't be. So I, uh, I'm just confused, dissettled. And then Yazin's father walks over, Jamal. We talk a long time. I'm going to tell you a story that Jamal told me that I think I didn't tell your group when you and I met, which is Jamal's story. He told me that he's from a Palestinian uh, village or city called Beit Umar, which is only a six-minute drive from where I live. And he said, of course, in Beit Umar, there's no Jews, there's no Israelis except for soldiers. He never met an Israeli or a Jew when he was growing up, except for soldiers. And because he only met soldiers, he knew that he hated all Israelis, hated all Jews, and would never want to meet one. But later in life, Jamal said that he had this friend from Beit Umar that used to go to interfaith dialogue between Muslims and Jews in the city of Jericho, which is about an hour drive from Beit Umar. And his friend asked him, he said, Jamal, why don't you come along with me? And Jamal said, so Jamal told me in our conversation, are you crazy? I'm not going to talk to those people. They're, they're, they're stealing our land. They're terrible. Only the weak people, the traitors, talk to the enemy. And his friend continued every time to cajole him, convince him, come along. He refused. Finally, I don't know after how much time, Jamal finally said, look, you're... Driving me crazy, I'll come with you once. So Jamal went, and he told me that the group sat in a big circle, and Jamal said, I sat out of the circle on the side, in a corner. I didn't want to participate. But at a certain point, this really guy came up to me, and we shook hands, we talked a little bit, and I, Jamal, said, made every effort to keep the conversation as short as possible. And when the guy left, Jamal said, <laughs> I ran to the bathroom to wash off my hand from the filth of touching one of the enemy. And I vowed I'd never, ever go back. Jamal went back. And he went back again. And a third time. And he told me the story of how he was hesitant. He didn't want to go back, but he did want to go back. He was curious. He was afraid. And he discussed it with his wife. And his wife said, how dare you go back there? You shouldn't have gone the first time. And he told me they had big arguments about it. He went back, and eventually his wife came with him. And eventually his children came with him. And eventually they sent their kids to this Seeds of Peace camp in Maine. And he talked to me about the transformation that he and his family underwent. And I'm listening to Jamal tell me this, and I'm just incredulous. I remember being so confused and so upset. It can't be. It just doesn't happen. He's from Beit Umar. That's where the terrorists come from. That's where the people who want to kill us. He can't be a peacenik. It just can't be. And a Palestinian underwent a spiritual transformation. Are you crazy? It can't be. But he's telling me it. I was so confused. So at the end of the conversation, and a lot of things transpired in that conversation, Jamal tells me, uh, Hanan, you know that when the little kids in Beit Umar see someone who looks like you, they start to cry. I said, Jamal, why do they start to cry? And Jamal didn't understand why I don't understand, as if anyone who looks at me starts to cry and I should understand. So finally he says, Hanan, you don't get it? Look, you have a big kippah on your head, and you have a long black beard, and you have those ritual fringes hanging from your belt. Well, all the people look like that. They carry submachine guns, and they kill the kids in Beit Umar. I didn't know what to say to Jamal. I thought he had a lot of uh, a lack of tact for first conversation. <laughs> There's a long silence. And then he, he didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything. And then this light bulb goes off in my mind, and I realize that this is a moment of blessing. Because for the first time in my life, 
I'm able to experience how the other experiences me. And I say to myself, if I can only find a place to put this in my soul and not reject it, then that's a blessing. So I felt like the, little, the pain in my stomach as I, as I held this new truth that the kids are afraid of me. Although I still didn't know what to say to Jamal. And then another light bulb goes into my mind and I say to myself that I can, I must and I can put myself in the shoes of those little kids. So why are they afraid? Okay, I say to myself, yeah, because most of my neighbors or some of my neighbors carry guns when they go in the fields. And that's frightening, I guess, to little kids. We look so different and we carry guns. So I said to Jamal, Jamal, what do you want? My neighbors carry guns because they're afraid of you Palestinians. And Jamal was offended that I said that. And he said, no, you're not afraid of us. We're afraid of you. And it was such a moment Amazing. of confusion for me. I, I was completely dis, uh, discombobulated by this whole conversation. And then I met Ali Abu Awad, the Palestinian who was the owner of the land we were sitting on. We were in a big circle, all of us. We'd stopped milling around and eating. We're in a big circle. And Ali collected us. He started to explain what it's like growing up as part of a Palestinian refugee family living in Beit Umar under the Israeli occupation. And he said that word occupation and I was totally floored. What's he talking about? Never in my life had I heard a human being use that phrase, Israeli occupation. Of course, I read in the newspaper and I heard in the radio, the European Union, the UN, all the governments, politics, they talk about occupation. But I never experienced the human being who, who would use those words. Where I come from, there's no such thing as occupation around here. I drive on the roads and I walk in the fields. I don't see Israeli occupation. I see that the Jewish people have returned to our homeland after 2,000 years of exile. It's what we've been yearning and hoping and praying for. It's a dream come true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle. And remember, it was 1948 when the state of Israel was created. It was just three years after the Holocaust. The Jewish people, there were millions of Jews around the world with no place to go in displaced persons camp. So finally, we have one little dot on the map, which we can call our own to put our bedraggled, tired, half-dead bodies. And suddenly I hear from Ali Abu Awad, that our Jewish-Israeli-Zionist triumph is his nation's tragedy. And our justice and our righteousness is his nation's suffering. And I just had no idea. It was all in front of me, but I just never saw it. I was blind because I was living my whole life just in my story, in my truth, in my narrative, in my people, like I was enveloped in a blanket that prevented me from seeing anything else. And, and now in this event of meeting Jamal and meeting Yazin and, and their, their mother, their, their wife and, and Ali, a whole new world is opened in front of me. And I, and I realized that I had been blind. I'd been ignorant and I went home confused and upset and unsettled, realizing that, that I didn't know where I was. I knew only half the truth in the land that I thought I knew the whole truth. So a long, long process began in me. That was difficult and depressing and, and all of these words that I'm just repeating myself because I can't get across the emotions of just falling into a black hole of realizing that you don't understand what's going on with you. I mean, look, I... I think anyone and so many people can relate to is when we have one specific notion of you kept saying it can't be, it can't be. So it's like when you have one specific notion of what is, your world is rocked, your whole foundation goes away. Right. And then you have to go through the process, which I know you're about to talk about, of re-questioning and understanding how to reframe the whole thing. But that's how old were you at this point? I mean, that's years of one thought process that now you have to take apart. But like how beautiful so many people don't even even attempt to shift it or take it apart ever. So it's amazing that you even had this experience and then actually went through the process of reframing it all. So I was 57, I guess. Yep, so you say you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> yeah, and it's so 
although it was so difficult and I was very depressed uh, and lost for a number of months, but I, I just was certain that I was coming to something broader and larger and, and really, in my eyes, more divine. Just to connect to a larger truth is, is more divine. So I read a little bit on the internet, and I thought a lot, and I just met more and more Palestinians. And I met Israelis who had met Palestinians. And it was a paradigm shift and, uh, that I underwent. And to explain this paradigm shift, I want to tell the story of Ali Abu Awad. He tells the story, of course, powerfully. He's such an incredible man, so please do. So just very shortly, I can't do justice, but Ali says that he grew up in Beit Umar, this Palestinian village, with a deep sense of national responsibility, Palestinian responsibility. He says that I had the Palestinian nation on my shoulder and I carried my nation with great pride and patriotism. He and his family were a central part of the first intifada, the first Palestinian uprising against Israel, against my people, beginning in 1987. Uh, he and most of his family were sentenced to jail sentences. He uh, was convicted uh, and thrown into jail for 10 years. Uh, in the end, he got out after four years because of the Oslo Accords. And uh, he tells the story of how after he got out of jail, his brother was killed by Israeli soldiers. To use Ali's words, his brother was murdered randomly by Israeli soldiers. And he talks about the pathos of the, the sadness and the mourning and then the feelings of revenge and the anger and the desire just to kill someone on the other side to, to make it better. But there's no revenge, he realized. Nothing he can do can bring his brother back. And he's talking about how he's just stuck and he doesn't know how to go forward, just full of this hate. And then his family got a call, phone call from an Israeli bereaved father who'd lost a son in this conflict. His son had been killed by a Hamas sniper. And this Israeli father said, I want to come and comfort your family. I want to bring a few Israeli mothers who've lost sons and daughters in the conflict and talk to your family that's now lost a son in this conflict. And Ali's mother agreed to the meeting. Uh, she collected a number of Israeli, of uh, Palestinian bereaved mothers they sat together, they talked a little bit, but mostly they cried, Ali said. And Ali said, it was the first time in my life that I saw that Israelis have emotions. I couldn't believe it. It was the first time in my life that I saw that the color of an Israeli mother's tears is the same color as my mother's tears. And Ali says, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was totally confused by it. And after that day, Ali began to see another reality, another truth. Of course, it's a long, long story of, of struggle and personal transformation, but the whole clan, the Abuwad clan, became peace activists. Unbelievable. So why am I telling this story? For the last line, for the last line, which is Ali says that today, after I've spent 15, 18, 20 years meeting Israelis and understanding them, today I have the Palestinian nation still on my shoulder, and I carry the nation with great pride and responsibility, but on the other shoulder, I carry the Israeli nation. And I carry the Israeli nation also with great pride and responsibility. Ali became for me a teacher, a mentor, and I realized that that's what I have to do. I have to do what he did. I have to find a way to expand my identity, not to abandon my truth, but to add into my truth another reality, another people. So how, I mean, this is why I wanted to talk to you today so badly, by the way, that story makes me cry every time, is because I think there's so many lessons and we could remove Israelis and Palestinians as, you know, the subject matter. And there's so many lessons that this goes towards. I mean, especially in the States right now between, you know, conservatives and liberals, there's so much tension. And I just feel like this is such a beautiful lesson for all of us to learn about how to have new perspective and self-compassion and love. And like you said, we identify. But how do you begin this? How do you, how do you go past victimhood? How do you go past victimization? How do you go past 
somebody feeling, but they did this to me. And obviously, Israelis and Palestinians, the list is so long on both sides that each, you could just sit there all day, but you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. And both are right. <laughs> so how in everyday life, or whether you want to talk about it within Israeli and Palestinian, um, that's fair too. But in general, how does one start to begin getting over victimization? So first of all, I agree with you 100% that this is really uh, universalizable. Uh, and indeed, uh, myself and my Palestinian partners have spoken in inner city schools in the U.S. in which our message re resonates for blacks and whites and, of course, resonates for Jews and Muslims and Christians so if I knew a simple answer to your question, I'd get the Nobel Prize, of course. There is no answer. I can say a few things about what we do in our work in Roots. By the way, I think that's the first Please. point that I mentioned, the word Roots. Uh, that's the name of our organization. Roots is the Israeli-Palestinian grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation that we formed about four and a half years ago as we together began this process the Palestinians and Israelis, of recognizing each other. So we don't know uh, why we succeeded. We're growing quickly, and we don't know exactly how we, what our formula is. The few things I can say are this, is that we've created an atmosphere in which everyone knows they come to our joint activities in order to listen, not in order to argue. The people who come tell the story of who they are. And they tell the story of who they are because they know the other side has come to hear that story. We tell it not to say that we're right, but so that you know who we are. And the other side listens. To listen is the hardest thing. Because like you said, you want to argue, you want to say you're, you're wrong, that's not correct, it can't be. But we just listen. Sometimes we listen for a long time. And we listen to things that sometimes we think are ridiculous, are terrible. And we uh, bite our nails or we sit on our hands and we prevent ourselves from getting up and strangling the speaker. We just listen. And very often, someone who's been listened to is now ready to listen when the other side tells its story. We say that nothing is out of bounds to be discussed in our meetings, but we don't come just to talk about the bad things, about what this divides us. A lot of our discussions begin with just getting to know each other, really simple things like, like music and, and family. And then after you establish a, uh, a basis of human rapport and understanding, you can get into the deeper, harder things. We also use a religion as a bridge. More and more, our events uh, begin with Jewish-Muslim or Jewish-Christian connections, and there's so much similarity between the different religions. And after, it always happens that people say, wow, I didn't realize your religion was so much like mine. <laughs> people are amazed. They're blown away. They're, they, they lose their balance by seeing how much the, the two sides are similar. And when people lose their balance, then again, they become more ready to, to listen because they're like amazed. How could it be? <laughs> we have the same names of God, the same ideas, the same fasting and, and, and prayer. How could it be? And then people become ready to listen. Uh, we use also a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say that, we use a little bit of Jewish mystical teaching. So we use a little bit, or at least I do when I uh, am facilitating, of uh, insights from the Jewish mystical tradition. And uh, the Jewish mystics teach us that God is the infinite one, infinite time, infinite space. But what many people don't uh, sufficiently pay attention to is that according to some of the Jewish mystics, God is actually the infinite kaleidoscope 
that brings together all of the truths of the universe. And the mystics even talk about these truths colliding and opposing each other and being balanced and rebalanced in the Godhead, in the reality of God. And uh, we have an idea in Judaism that's also found in other religions, so I'm told, that one is supposed to live his life as much as possible like God, to be like God, to make yourself in the image of God, over and above the fact that we were created in God's image. And what that means from a mystical perspective is that if God is the infinite kaleidoscope of all the truths of the universe, then I too have to make myself a kaleidoscope for more and more truths. So every person has their basic identity that they begin with. But what we want to do is add into the identity more and more slivers, pieces of, of truth, of other truth, of difficult truth, of uncomfortable truth, of a foreign truth, and make it less foreign and less uncomfortable. And one of the most beautiful metaphors that the Jewish tradition uses for making yourself that kaleidoscope is the metaphor of collecting the sparks of divinity that are scattered throughout the world. There's pieces of God everywhere, sparks of God, which are sparks of truth. And what I want to do in the best case scenario is to go around the world and meet whites and blacks and Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives and and Muslims and Jews and Palestinians and Israelis and collect a little bit of their truth and make it all part of me, which of course is much, much more difficult to do than it is to say. It's very, very hard. You know, it's funny because one of the quotes that Ali said that I love is there can be no harmony until we, referring to Israelis and Palestinians, see the humanity of the other side. It sounds like that's a lot of what you're talking about, but you're right. It is for some people, they are really, the there's, there's so much anger that it is really hard to even have the ability to start listening, as you said, and to start hearing and seeing. Do you... Have you? How have you seen when you do these talks and even through Roots and what you guys do, the best way of getting people, A, to start listening, but also B, to start, I guess, is forgiveness part of this also? Or no, is it not about forgiveness? Is it about letting go? That's a very good question. Uh, let me tell you that Ali is much better than I in talking about <laughs> getting over anger. Because I never had anger. The Palestinians just didn't exist for me. Right. Uh, for some reason, I wasn't born with anger. I don't know what I... <laughs> I don't know. Right, and your situation was... Because you were in the States, and Ali was right there, and like you said, his family was on the front lines. Yeah, and he, that's absolutely part of it. So, I mean, what do you think the balance is between forgiveness and letting go, and even apologizing, I guess? What is the mix of that, and is there a mix at all? To get over anger. Like I said, I never suffered from anger vis-a-vis the Palestinians. I've known people, of course, who've been killed. I've known people who've been injured. I myself have been attacked by Palestinians. My car has been stoned. My kids have suffered trauma. I've suffered trauma. I remember that sense you have when you see a big rock, a big stone flying towards your car windshield and then shattering it. But with all that, I never carried anger, so I can't tell you about getting over anger. But you can talk about what you see through the people you work with and through your organization. Right. How do you see that they success? So let me tell you something like this. Even um, like Jamal, who you were talking about. Yeah. Uh, what I can say is this, that sometimes I'm talking to a group of Israelis together with my Palestinian partner, explaining the work we do, and it becomes clear there's nothing I as an Israeli can say to other Israelis to convince them that they shouldn't generalize concerning the Palestinians, they shouldn't Uh, be angry at all of them, they shouldn't hate all of them, that it's individuals that do the terrible things that are done. But there are many, many 
quote-unquote good Palestinians. Most of them are just like us, peace-loving people. There's nothing I can say. It doesn't help. And always there is uh, one person in the audience who gets up in anger and yells something like saying, I'm a bereaved father, I'm a bereaved mother. There's nothing you can say to bring my son back. And they are about to walk out of the room. And then, just when I'm feeling that everything is lost, my Palestinian partner steps up and speaks. He can break through the hard shell of my people's identity in a place that I can't break through that shell. Because so I, when I start talking and saying Palestinians are human beings, people don't listen. They just say, you're a leftist. Uh, you don't know. You haven't experienced it. You didn't lose a son. But when the Palestinian gets up and he talks, or she talks, and my Israeli neighbors see he's a human being. He, he looks like one of us. He talks nicely. He has a story to tell. He, he listens to us. And then Ali or Khaled or Noor, one of us and partners, talks about the fact that he understands you Israelis. He understands your pain. He, he understands your story. But he wants to tell his story also. That's what can, in many cases, break down the wall that prevents people from listening. Having the other in front of you present himself as a human being. How do you guys find... How do you see it working for you guys? I mean, you have these ama this amazing organization and you do all these great grassroots things on a smaller level too, whether it be camps or discussions. How do you find, like, do you feel like it's you guys against your governments? Like this beautiful, like peace-loving community that's trying to spread the message, but yet do you feel sometimes it's insurmountable or do you feel like you can see this proliferating? Both uh, polls are true at the same time. We are proliferating. Our local work is growing, and also we have three different places in the country that are uh, replicating our model locally in their own places, which is unbelievably, uh, how do you say, uh, gratifying. But on the Absolutely. other hand, it still is just a drop in the bucket. Uh, I'm told that there are some members of the Israeli parliament that like and support what we're doing, but their support is not public. Uh, it's People feel they're not ready yet. The atmosphere is not ready to come out with it publicly. We're still a drop in the bucket. We're going against the stream. Uh, the, the tide, the stream, the prevalent wisdom is that the other side doesn't exist. There's no one to talk to. But by these face-to-face, uh, one-on-one -one meetings, we're learning that that's not true. There's someone to talk to. Now, when you guys are together, have there been any current events since I knew where you guys is? boiling over there is there any time something in in today's current events comes up that could sideline you that like you feel both people kind of reverting back to quote-unquote sides or no there's been so much shift that you can relate to what's going on in a unified perspective or do you still have different perspectives but the ability to listen the work we're doing is precarious because we're flowing we're swimming against the tide and all of the events happening around us uh, would be telling us that this is not worth it and you should just forget it's not going to work. But the events that are happening around us have not succeeded in sidetracking us for four and a half years. It's pretty amazing. I'll tell you that when we first began in 2014, we had our first summer camp in the summer of 2014. And I remember the little Palestinian kids and little Israeli kids playing and doing arts and crafts together and painting each other's faces and riding on the donkey together. And there's Israeli and Palestinian parents of little kids standing on the side. They've come to pick up their kids or to see what's going on. And then everyone's looking at their phones at the same time. And I looked at my phone also. I realized that the war in Gaza had restarted. The ceasefire had been broken. And you have these parents standing on the side, on the side, uh, looking on their phones, seeing that uh, rockets are falling and people are dying and the kids are, are still playing and not one parent took their kids out of that and the kids came back the next day it didn't fall apart and I even tell you the following the last day of the summer camp we hired two buses to take the kids to the beach together and we had planned to go to the beach in Ashdod which is about an hour drive from us and Ashdod is only less than an hour drive from Gaza, where the war was going on. And there were 
Hamas rockets being fired from Gaza on Israel and the beach in Ashdod was within the range of the rockets. So what did we do? We took the bus and we drove north to get out of the range of the rockets. So imagine this. You have Israeli kids and Palestinian kids in the same two buses together fleeing from the war. And we went to the, we got to uh, Herzliya further north. We went to the beach together. Uh, someone might say it's a sacrilege that the kids are playing together while people are killing each other. But it's the opposite. By playing together, we're going to prepare the next generation that won't be willing anymore to make war. I don't want to simplify it. It's not easy. It's a long process. But we are preparing the human groundwork that's necessary for a new way of thinking and behaving. Absolutely. Like you said, you're humanizing the other side to each other. And that is the only way I feel like fundamentally change can begin when you're not looking at it like a pawn or a piece of like on a game. It's when they're actually humans with emotions and feelings and emotions. I think it's making decisions in a different way. So I think that's amazing. Do you feel like in today's day and age, because of Facebook and all these abilities to connect and whether it be Snapchat and every other way everyone communicates, do you think that also in some ways can help this movement? Because you're creating these connections. And I think you inferred it with the kid who went to Seeds of Peace. Can these friendships stay solid because of these abilities to stay in touch? And then also the ability to keep seeing each other's point of view through these mediums. Like, could this actually be a really positive benefit of some of these, you know, modern day technologies? So yes, Facebook is absolutely helping us. And you know, I know today because of my work, I have Muslim friends all over the world and in Gaza and in, uh, in the West Bank. And these, the connections are powerful and meaningful for me and for them. But on the other hand, I have to mention that many Palestinians are afraid of putting on Facebook anything of our activities because they're threatened. They don't live in a democratic society. Uh, there are absolutely elements in Palestinian society and even in the ruling uh, framework that uh, try to hurt people who that's make true. contact with the enemy. Do you, that's so interesting. And going back, because I want to kind of talk about one more thing before we kind of move on, because I know I've taken so much of your time, but you're so amazingly interesting and doing such great work. What do you remember? I mean, I love how you speak about your first meeting and then how you kept going back and how it was your depression and reframing and rewiring to kind of look at the world truly differently and look at people differently. But do you remember the moment gradual you don't remember? But do you remember a moment where you're like, oh my God, thousand percent I would have looked at this so differently and I can't even imagine looking at it that way or yes. was there a moment you can talk about or no was it just this yeah oh great oh, there's lots of moments I can tell you a very funny but a very powerful story uh, someplace Please. seven eight months after I began this process of transformation after meeting my neighbors I was at the center that we created to bring the two sides together we call it the dignity center and I needed a ride home. One of the Palestinians uh, said, okay, I can give you a ride part of the way home. So I got in his car. Uh, and before I tell you what happened in the car, I have to give some background, which is that Palestinians and Israelis drive in the same roads where we have different color license plates. Israelis have yellow and Palestinians have white or green license plates. So everyone knows that that car is one of them. It's not one of us. That car is dangerous. So I get in the car, the Palestinian car, with the Palestinian license plates, with white license plates. I sit in the back, and there are two Palestinians in front, the driver and his friend next to him, and we start driving. We drive a few seconds, and I start to laugh. Really, really laugh uncontrollably. And my Palestinian <laughs> friends in the front of the car turn around and say, Hanan, why are you laughing? And I said, because look, I'm thinking that only a few months ago, if I would have imagined myself in a car with Palestinian license plates, I would have imagined only one scenario. They said, what? I said that I'm being kidnapped. And now I'm in your car and I'm not being kidnapped. How could that be? And it was so funny to them. But for me to be in a car with Palestinian license plates was a moment of like total transformation of perspective because for most of my friends and for me until 
I went through this transformation to be in a car with white white license plates means only one thing. You're being going to be kidnapped and you're probably going to be murdered. It's so interesting. I, that's such a great story. And it, you're right. I love it. It's very specific to that moment. It's interesting because you're a rabbi and clearly you've studied scripture and the Jewish religion in a much deeper, more intense way than some others have. How do you feel that this transformation, and you still are a rabbi, how do you feel that this transformation of yours has changed the way you look at your learnings and let's say scripture or how you perceive yourself connected to the religion? So it's clear to me that Jewish tradition has played a role, a negative role, in this conflict. Uh, religion is used, Jewish religion, just like Muslim religion is used, in order to create barriers between us and them, in order to remind us that we and them are different. The uh, animosity of the past is, uh, is looked at often as a model of the way things are supposed to be. We're supposed to be at war with them. They're supposed to be at war with us. And seeing this gives me the sense that we absolutely have to make an effort to emphasize the other voices in Jewish tradition, the more moderate, the more universal voices in tradition. They're absolutely there. The texts are there. But in the present circumstances of the israel Arab conflict, those moderate and more universal sources have been sidelined, whereas the sources that talk about the conflict, us and them, have been uh, enlisted into the conflict. Uh, religion has been brought into the conflict as, as part of it. So in Roots, what we do is not only to talk to each other and understand each other and study our religions together, we also, on each side, are really working on emphasizing and uh, bring to the fore those texts that reflect the truth that we're experiencing, that we are so similar and we have to build bridges together. We're in this land together. You know, most Israelis and most Palestinians think that their side is the only side that belongs here. The other side is going to disappear another five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. If we just hang on long enough, they'll be gone. We in Roots have realized the other side's not going to leave ever. They belong here. They're part of the land. Their connection is as real as ours. And when we realize that they're here to stay, well, we have to therefore live with them. We have to uh, uh, find within our tradition those sources, and there are many of them, that accept the other and emphasize that he's created just like us in God's image. And he also has a role to play in this land and in this life, in this universe. On that note, let's go to the four you questions, which are just four quick questions I give four takeaways to the listeners, which I think this is a perfect segue. Okay. What's your favorite book? So I guess we'd have to say my favorite book is Hebrew Scripture. That's what I spend so much of my life learning and learning from and finding more and more meaning there. Yeah. What? What, who is an inspirational or has been an inspirational teacher for you? That's really a hard question. I don't even remember what I wrote in what I wrote to you to answer that question. There's a number of them. Uh, there's one living teacher. His name is uh, Rabbi Irving Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. He's an old man today, uh, still very active. And one of the main things in his life has been um, developing a theology of pluralism, of multiple truths. And he's been leading the way in Christian Jewish dialogue. And that has certainly served as a model for me in opening up now Muslim Jewish dialogue. That's beautiful. Do you have a food or a drink or an object you cannot live without? Well, uh, we Jews uh, bind every day on our hands and our forehead certain passages from Scripture and the little boxes in which those passages are found that we bind to our hands and to our forehead are called phylacteries in Hebrew tefillin. So when I think of, uh, you know, when I'm going someplace, I'm going to stay over, the one thing that I'm absolutely making sure to remember to take with me is my tefillin, my, my phylacteries. <laughs> What's the first thing you do when you wake up? So uh, besides bodily needs, I say a prayer. Uh, we yes. have a one-line prayer we say when we wake up, thanking God for turning our soul to our body. It's called Modeh Ani, 
I thank you. And then after that prayer, I do some stretching exercises and I uh, pray the prayers of the morning about 15, 20 minutes. And that's uh, every day, rain or shine, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Uh-huh. <laughs> Look, on that note, I want to thank you so much. I, I feel like everything you've said is so unbelievably inspirational. I really hope that people can listen and take example of what you guys are doing over there, not just to support you guys, which would be at friendsofroots.net if you want to know more, but also in just being able to take some of the lessons for themselves. Cause I feel like, like you said, especially here in the States between conservatives, liberals, blacks and whites, and now with immigration, all of that going on, these are just unbelievable lessons that if we would all just take two steps back and listen and learn and think about something from someone else's point of view, we can make a lot of change in a positive way. And I really appreciate you talking to us about it. And I want to remind everybody that at the end of this, the rabbi will do a seven minute teaching on partial truth. So thank you so much, Rabbi, for being with us. You're welcome. So um, what I wanted to, to say was actually a continuation of this idea that God is the kaleidoscope of all the truths of the universe and we should try to collect his sparks of truth from all the people we meet in this world. The metaphor that one of our traditional teachers has used in order to better concretize this idea of collecting the sparks of truth is the following. A verse from the book of Proverbs in Hebrew Scripture. Death and life are in the hands of the tongue. Death and life are in the hands of the tongue. What does it mean that death is in the hands of the tongue? Think of a person who goes around the world and spits. He spits at the sparks. The world is full of sparks of divine truth. If you spit at them, they go out. And what that means is you meet someone that you don't agree with, that you don't like, whose ideology or skin color or religion or philosophy for you is just anathema. It's wrong. If his political party would rule the country, the country would go to pot. Usually these people, when we meet them, we denigrate, we don't listen, we nullify everything they say, we spit at them. If not literally, then spiritually or figuratively, we spit at them in their truth. The teaching says that when you do that, a little bit of God's truth is extinguished. And that's what it means. Death is in the hands of the tongue. But the other way of going around the world is to bring life through your tongue. What does it mean? It means to go around the world and instead of spitting at the sparks, you blow gently at the sparks. So use your mouth, your tongue to blow gently on the sparks. And if you think of the truth on the other side of the aisle, blacks and whites, Democrats and Republicans, sometimes men and women, Jews and Christians, if you think of what the other has, his truth, his way as a spark, you can blow gently on that spark, which means to listen to appreciate, to try and find the little value in what he's saying, the little part you can appropriate for yourself, to hear something in Trump or in Hillary or in Democrats and Republicans, there is something that you can massage so that you can bring it into your soul as a spark that's going to illumine you and warm you and teach you something new. It's really, really hard to do, but that's what... I think must be done. And that's what's called life is in the hands of the tongue. Step across the aisle and listen and appreciate, appropriate for yourself, something that you didn't believe is true until now. Don't cancel what you think is true, but add in to your repertoire this additional way of looking at at the world. And the uh, end piece of this philosophy is from a rabbi who lived about 80 years ago. And as a mystic, he said, the world is full of sparks of God's truth, as we've been saying. He asks himself a rhetorical question. If the world is full of sparks of truth, does that mean that there's no falsehood in this world? It's all true? And his answer was that, unfortunately, the world is not all true. There's lots of falsehood in this world. But then he explained, what is falsehood? And now the most important thing I'm going to say, falsehood 
is partial truth masquerading as complete truth. We all have some partial truth. Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and, and others, and Sikhs and, and Baha'is, and all of us have partial truth. We have perspectives on the universe that are true and are valid. And Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and liberals. But most of us, unfortunately, think that our truth is the only truth. It's the complete truth. It's the whole truth. And all the other truths are wrong. But I believe that the true truth is that all the truths are true. All the perspectives are true. But you have to remember that all of them, as separate pieces, are only partial truth. If you want to search for the real God's truth, you have to bring them all together. And that's very hard. That's very difficult. You have to balance them. You have to contain them. You have to live with contradictions. I believe the truths are contradictory. Two things can be contradictory to it at the same time. Democrats and Republicans, now I'm repeating myself, so the idea is to remember that what you believe is probably true. And what the other believes is also probably true. And what's wrong with what he's saying is not what he's saying. It's what he's not saying. What makes your truth not the whole truth is not what you're saying. It's that you don't have the other pieces that other people have. We have to collect all the different pieces, gather in the sparks, fan the flames, and then we can have, I think, better souls, <laughs> expanded souls, and ultimately we're preparing the groundwork for a better world. Dent Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also, wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Dent Talks podcast, and join us there.